everyone. You're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. You're listening to the podcast where we talk to neuroscientists about their research and their journey to becoming full-fledged neuroscientists. Yeah, thank you for tuning in. Uh, and we're just going to jump straight into this. We're going to get, we're, we're doing it that quickly? Th- this, yeah, no, uh, no, no time to waste. There's, there's a, we got a great episode coming up. All right, man. Um, I, I'm on, I'm all bored. On board. <laughs> I'm not bored also. <laughs> you're not, good. You're, you're not bored and you're on board? Indeed. Yes. Wow. So, uh, tell me about who you talked to today. So I spoke with Dr. Andre Fenton. He's a professor of neuroscience at NYU. That's New York University. And his research focuses on primarily learning and memory, and he comes at this from many different angles, from the molecular to behavioral to computational. And so his lab has been very diverse and covers lots of different topics related to learning and memory. Okay. From this diverse set of topics, what did you guys talk about specifically? So some of the science that will come up involves how animals navigate in space. So we're talking about the play cell, aren't we? How did you know? Yes, we're talking about that old famous play cell. The brain's GPS uh, navigation system, as it's referred to in the popular press. Yeah, we won't call it. We will not call it that in the interview. But yes, understanding how animals navigate in space has been a cornerstone of his research for a long period of time. But actually, we, we're we pretty light on that in this episode, and in fact, we really just moved around and talked about a lot of his different, his path to become a scientist, and he actually has started a biotech company. Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah and, and that biotech company works on trying to make miniature devices such as EEG machines that can be used, uh, so somebody with very little experience could be able to use them very easily. Yeah, sort of like how they have those defibrillators in uh, all over the place now. Anybody can pick one up and use it. That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, so his bioengineering background and uh, his tinkering, he kind of taught himself how to do a lot of these these things. So we talk about that. And uh, finally, there's a whole series of his research on this molecule called PKM Zeta that we just didn't even talk about at all in the interview. So I would highly recommend if you're interested in that, check it out. Uh, look up PKM Zeta. It's a very fascinating story that has ups and downs about its relationship to learning and memory. Could you spell that, please? PKM Zeta. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, keeping with our, our rapid pace, how about we just get those cochlea perked and get to the episode? Yes, let's get to the interview. like to actually just start from kind of where you grew up. Okay, so my name is Andre Fenton. I am a neuroscientist. I was born in Guyana, South America. That's a small country in the northeastern corner of the of the continent. I'm an only child. I grew up with my parents until really only maybe I was three or four. I don't remember uh, exactly, <laughs> uh, but they divorced. 
And then I grew up mostly with my mother. In Guyana, I then lived there from about, I would say, five, four or five to seven, something like that with my grandmother because my mother had moved to Toronto to try and figure out how to make a life there and so on. What Um, brought her there was? Well, Guyana's not the best country to make a living in. In fact, it's a pretty terrible country to make a living in. It's not, it doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities for, for sort of anything. So many people from Guyana, if they can figure out a way to do it, they leave and many go to Toronto, Canada. Your mother went there. You were then raised by your grandmother. Did I that, was raised did, by my grandmother for just a short amount of time while my mother figured out yeah. you know, how to make a living and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And then I joined my mother from the age of seven in Toronto. So I grew up in Toronto, Toronto, Canada. Okay. I think of myself as Canadian as a result. What was your then Canadian life like? Was it? A, did you find it to be a big change moving there? Or at that point, was it still... You know. So it being a kid, I remember pretty clearly getting to Guyana when I was seven. And I have to say, I don't remember it as being easy, but I don't remember it as being hard, but I remember it being very particular. And frankly, it has, I think, a lot to do with how what my personality is like and what I have ended up doing. Yeah. And that's because I got to a place and I remember very clearly realizing I don't understand how it works here. So I'll give you an example. I remember my first snowfall. So my mother had bought me this, you know, looked like a spacesuit really, but it was a snowsuit. I'd never worn a snowsuit. Mm-hmm. She said, put it on, it's snowing. So I go outside and, you know, there's really a lot of snow. And I was told to, you know, do something with it like a normal kid would, right? Yeah. But I don't know what a normal kid would do. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, my mother, who'd clearly seen other kids making snow angels, like telling me to make a snow angel. And as the snow sort of fell on my face, I remember thinking, how stupid is this? This is like, you know, why would I, why would anyone want to do this? But at the same time, it was sort of cool, you know, it was sort of neat to have the snow falling on my face. I I remember very clearly, and so I have a bunch of memories like that where I feel like, wow, things are different here. I don't understand the rules, and so I need to kind of figure out how it works. Hmm. And so the same I remember clearly with sports. You know, that's what most boys do. They play sports, but I didn't know any of the sports that the other kids played. I knew how to play cricket. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what we did in Guyana. But nobody played cricket in yeah. Toronto. And so it wasn't... I'll be honest, I don't you know. know. I've never even watched... I know so it's like a, you're, that, a which, which is normal, right? So <laughs> so I had to figure out how to learn to play baseball or hockey. hockey. And so... And it took sort of recognizing that these were learnable things, but like study them a little bit to, yeah, right. to sort of get the, the gist. Because I think I was a little bit shy to explain that I don't know how to do these things. And, you know, you become a popular person by being chosen to be on the team when the kids play at recess, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to be chosen not at the end, but early on in the picks. Just not right? last. No, He's not my, last, in my mind, that's right. Like, as long as I'm not last, that's <laughs> right. just the one place that's I don't right. want to be. <laughs> so I, I very clearly remember, you know, my first years of being in Toronto, of trying to figure out how things work okay. and fit in. Did you say that that almost has paralleled something that you've been interested in, I guess now, a structure yeah. without well, set you know, rules? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a pretty... 
I've I've become the kind of person who's willing to try things and do experiments that aren't obviously prescribed. And I think it's because I have a I was trained from the time I was, you know, six or seven to be willing to look at a situation and say, there's got to be a way that this makes sense. Just like figure it out, yeah. you know, and through observation, you can make sense of many things. Okay. So, you know, that's sort of a style of the, the kinds of, I think most scientists are like that, frankly. They presume that things make sense mm -hmm. and they try to find out what that sense is. Yeah. But I've really embraced that at many levels of my life. Do you take that to... You know, when you're not working, you're sort of like, you know, personal life. Do you, you also have Yeah, you know, I, I you think do? I think of, um, you know, like hiking, skiing, you know, l literally anything. You know, I have a daughter who's uh, six and three quarters, so she's kind of just around the age yeah, I can start remembering uh, my life. And, you, should you know, move I back to right, I, we should like just take her somewhere. <laughs> I keep thinking that was like such a great thing for me. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure it was without its pains and so on. But in the long term, it was a, you know, pretty good way to learn to be adaptive. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. And so I try and teach her to the extent that I can by practice. You know, when something doesn't work or something seems broken or something doesn't appear to make sense, I go out of my way to express that it must make sense if somebody else mm -hmm. who's an expert in it understands how to do this. She's we like, can too. Like, we just have I get to ice know. Cream tonight, Daddy. Like, <laughs> right. It will make sense to you someday. That's right. Let's walk through the you know the structure of how ice cream gets made and yes. brought to our home and so on. Now I I do my best not to you know mess her up, but um that's to me that's a very important way of thinking about the world. You know, so one of the things that I, I also do, I started a biomedical engineering company. So I have a company, and that company has a bunch of professional people running it, and we make medical devices. And it turns out to make medical devices isn't all that hard. What's really hard is to figure out how to sell medical devices and get other people to use those medical devices and so on. And at times when that seems daunting, to me, it's really not all that different than figuring out how a neural circuit might operate. Okay. It's complicated, it's complex, but I assume that there are rules. And I'm looking for those rules and I'm willing to you know, read what other people tell me those rules might be or consult them on knowing those rules. But just as I have learned, you know, simply asking somebody what the rules are usually doesn't get you the right answer yeah. that gives you that person's own idiosyncratic <laughs> and usually biased version of those rules that worked for them. And so this is the kind of thing I think, you know, I, I don't, I can't recollect, oh, that's how I came to understand the world. But very early on, I had to figure out the rules. And I couldn't ask my parents because they didn't understand the rules. Either. They were, maybe they were hoping you would actually pick up on right. it. Right. A, a nice story is when I learned to play baseball, I needed a baseball glove. So I, we went to the store to get a baseball glove, and they insisted that I get a right-catching glove. And I tried to explain to them that that's not how the other kids do it. I remember, like, I've watched. I saw all the other kids. They mostly put the gloves on their left hand, and when I borrowed yeah. one, I put it on my left hand, too. <laughs> and they said, well, look, which arm is stronger? 
In my right hand. Which arm do you write with? My right hand. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So that, that, their logic. that should be the logic for, you know, which, so I got a right-handed glove, which I could never use, right? <laughs> I can imagine that. Right, but I, but I didn't, like, yeah. Oh, God. You no, know, I, I hid it because I, you know, that's like, you know, embarrassing. So sure. you don't want to be embarrassed as an eight-year-old. Of course, so. yeah. <laughs> so um, I just, it was better to not have a glove. Sure. Having this, this company, too, do you use research that you're kind of doing now to inform the medical device Field sure. that, you, that you've worked on, or so the company is called BioSignal Group, and we make um, a suite of products called Micro EEG and StatNets. It's a company that makes a very small EEG machine, the kind of thing that you can use in emergency medicine and get an EEG sort of anywhere. You know, right now there are people in Malawi, Africa, their children who may have cerebral malaria, they're unconscious, and this device, which is a relatively inexpensive, easy to apply EEG, is collecting brain signals, and those signals are being sent to through internet to a computer somewhere in the cloud, and some neurologist is assessing the okay. EEGs and sending back an interpretation. And we started the company really because I had designed a bunch of, of behavioral tasks for the research that I do, as well as a small wireless electrophysiology system early on. And I was using these things for research, and so colleagues would say, oh, that's a really good tracking system. Can I have it? And I would say, sure, here it is. And then in two days, they would call me and say, can you like tweak this or that? Because there's no documentation, and they'd want it to work differently. Yeah. And I would complain to a friend that I played squash with. We were living in Prague at the time. And this friend, Sasha, would say, you should start a company. And say, Sasha, I don't want to start a company. I just want, don't want to like do this. I don't want people to bug me. You say, you should start a company because yeah, then you. you pay people to like take those calls right and it's called business and so eventually he said look let's start the company i start it with you i'll you know help figure that out we started the company and the mission of the company was to commercialize some of these neuroscience things that we developed or knew other people would develop and so through a bunch of you know, twists and turns and nothing strategic, we ended up being asked to make a small wireless EEG machine that could be useful in the event of a nerve gas attack. Okay. Um, NIH was interested and could, the government was concerned that if there was a nerve gas attack like you know, sarin, well, a lot of people would pass out and become paralyzed, but nerve gas agents also induce seizures. And so it's hard to know that someone is seizing when they're also paralyzed. And you develop you know, brain morbidities, and you can even die if you seize without it being arrested. But you wouldn't know to treat someone for that if they were paralyzed. Okay. And so that was sort of the, the logic of make a wireless EEG machine cool. that anyone could use. In particular, the indication was somebody, the specification is someone in a hazmat suit should be able to collect an EEG from just anybody anywhere. Okay, and that's so, a uh, restrictive right, type. That's, like, that's a huge That's idea. a huge suit with big gloves and so on. So we made okay. such a thing. And when we made it, we realized, and NIH and the FDA made it clear that while this was terrific in principle, it would never be useful. And the reason it would never be useful is sort of obvious. You know, imagine stockpiling a bunch of these things that you would never use until the nerve gas attack. And if such an attack or emergency ever happened, 
you don't go for stuff you don't know how to use, right? Yeah. So <laughs> um, when we quickly realized that, we also realized you could never really get such a device FDA approved because how would you know that it was effective for okay. detecting? You need an experimental need, group or something? Yeah, you would yeah. need to actually demonstrate efficacy, yeah. right? So good luck, right? <laughs> And so we realized that we had made this thing that was pretty good, but we didn't have a useful application. And I mean, again, it was pretty logical to say, well, if this was to be useful for a nerve gas attack, the key thing is that people should be used to using it in emergency medicine. So maybe we should design this for emergency medicine. Um, and when you look at emergency medicine, there's lots of good reasons to have EEGs, but very few facilities provide for an EEG in the emergency department. But we can save a company or a hospital, you know, 30% of the cost of managing any patient in the ED who comes in in an altered mental state, which is 4 to 10% depending on their hospital. So it can turn into billions of dollars of savings mm -hmm. just by doing an EEG in the emergency department, it turns out. Yeah. And it the reason it makes for big savings is, again, totally logical when you've assume that things must make sense. People get EEGs already in emergency medicine. They get them like a week after being in the hospital. But if they got them within an hour of being in the hospital, then they end up in a cheaper part of the hospital. They don't end up in the ICU. And you get information that helps you manage them most cost effectively. So it took time to sort of figure that out under the presumption that it would all make sense if we just like <laughs> kept paying attention. Nice. So that's um, what the company does. Okay, so you, this was a collaboration when you said someone that you when you were in Prague. Can we like uh, at what point in your life was that did did you, have you gone back and How forth? How did I there? get to Prague? We okay. went to we, you're in Canada. So uh, here's my life. Let's just do it all. <laughs> I do want to hit the big points, so okay. yeah. So when I was seven, I moved to Toronto. I grew up in Toronto until I'm 18. Then I go to McGill at McGill University. I spend four years there getting a biology degree. Was there, and, was there a path to being a scientist at that point kind of set up? No, in fact, I started McGill as a interested in philosophy and English. And um, I think I applied to McGill in the biochemistry program, and I did. I didn't know what biochemistry was at all, but I knew it was hard to get into biochemistry. Yeah. And if you got in, and I was a good student, so if I could get into biochemistry, so the logic went, then I could change to anything I wanted, and nobody could tell me no. Nice. So that was my <laughs> logic. Free pass, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so I, I don't think I took any biochemistry. Yeah, I guess, you know, organic chemistry. No, I don't think I took a, f a proper biochemistry class. <laughs> yeah. I study philosophy in English. I get disillusioned with philosophy, not being able to like give me anything. an answer. Yeah. Um, and I learned in a biology class the Jerry Letvin experiments, McCullough Pitts, what the frog eye tells the frog's brain, which was what I was interested in. So I became a neuroscience uh, okay. major, a neurobiology major in the biology program. 1990 happens, I graduate. So 1990 is cool because Eastern Europe has opened up. The Berlin Wall has fallen. And I graduate and I have a girlfriend who I'd been living with for a year and, or two even. 
and she's American. She's from New York. I'm from Toronto. We both need to work, so I can't work in the U.S. She can't yeah. work in Canada. We want to stay together. You need so like a visa at that point or something? You need, or? I think you need a visa and you know a, a skill. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So what skills do we have? None. Undergraduates, yeah, sorry. So I, I earned money by, I learned to sell whiskey and gin, actually. Really? Um, oh, wow. And so I sold whiskey and gin in Eastern Europe. Um, and we went to Eastern Europe because the same professor, Ron Chase, who gave those lectures on what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain, he was a snail biologist. And I, at, I said to him, I want to go somewhere interesting that's not the US or Canada, and do some kind of interesting neuroscience. I was a vegan at the time, and so I wanted to work on invertebrates, but I didn't really tell anybody that. Mm. And he was a snail biologist, so because I had such a wrong and narrow mind sort of view of what science was, I assumed anyone he recommended must also be a snail biologist. Okay. So I went to Prague because he suggested this person, Jan Buresh, who is not a snail biologist. Um, <laughs> you got there when you were, your, were you surprised? I was surprised. In? I looked for snails for like three days yeah. and there were no snails. And I realized, wow, there are no snails here. What does he work on? He He's one of the early people who studied the brain and, and its relationship to behavior in rats. Okay. So he's a well-known rat behaviorist uh, electrophysiologist. Yeah. And so... So that worked out kind of great because I had to learn all sorts of things really quickly and because uh, I had pretended I knew what I was doing. Okay, so this is a mentor gave you this. You sort of just opened it up and he's like, yeah, I know this guy in Prague. You should go there. And it was like, sure, that sounds great. Yeah, he's, you know, he pointed yes. to his shelf. He said, yeah, he wrote those books. And I went on vacation and never had access to a library. So I never checked the books. Yeah. And I never found out what I was going to get around to it you know there was no internet and so on yeah, yeah. I just never got around to figuring out what Jan Borish did yeah. until I got there well, and then I it was too late yeah. I, th I don't know if this is like a lesson and I, I, I've actually talked to lots of these people here about how did you become what's a story to get there and I just think it's maybe hopeful for listeners out there to know that like there's this strange kind of random walk that happens and you it's usually these influential people in your life that you're just like I like the way that they think I like that they, you see they seem to have a lifestyle that I kind of enjoy and then just sort of using them as yeah. beacons so that's exactly what, what happened I would say in my case and I would suspect in, in many people's case there's a thread that sort of connects it all. So when I get to Jan, what's cool about Jan Buresh is he studies anything. And so he can do anything. He gave me a huge list. He said, what do you want to do? Motor learning? Do you want to do imprinting? Do you want to study spreading depression? Yeah. Uh, what do you want? And one of the things he said was spatial memory. And so having been a philosophy student and having uh, being familiar with Kant, I was astonished to learn that there were cells called place cells that actually seem as an individual cell to recognize locations in space because that was supposed to not be possible or if it was it was supposed to be some kind of inherent property of a mind mm -hmm. and so it was not random when I said oh I want to study that yeah. you know that was sort of obvious that I was going <laughs> to study that um, it was very familiar to me, and it had been a thing I was actually very interested in. How does one come to possess knowledge? 
and here is an ability to possess knowledge about something that in principle doesn't exist right space there's no there's yeah. there's no um if you will absolute space and yet we all agree about mostly what space is and there were single cells that seemed to know this so that made it really easy to pick that topic for me sure. so it was sort of meandering but I could smell the thing that was always interesting me and yeah. you know I've stayed interested in exactly that kind of thing that's why I was a philosophy student I wanted to understand how we come to know things sure. that are you know uh, in in principle arbitrary yeah it's almost like things happen and then if you look backwards and like just look down the path the things that you are you know have an affinity towards you're going to gravitate to that, i mean that's, that's right. i think that's everyone's story but it's cool then to realize like oh my gosh i and what did you do with weight selling did you still sell gin and whiskey in, <laughs> in Prague too like on yeah the side, I, had, I sold gin and whiskey on the side to make money see yeah. i i was I didn't actually know, because I didn't have an academic family or background, I didn't in fact know any academics, so no one told me that you can go to university and get a graduate degree for free. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't fact. know that either. <laughs> so I assumed I needed to somehow collect enough money to be able to afford to go to graduate school. Yeah, I was only familiar with med school, which I had been told was you had to pay for or get grants. And I was like, I can't do that. And it wasn't until I had already graduated that then somebody told me, you can go back and they'll pay you for like an advanced degree. And that's how you do that thing that your professors are doing. Right. So, you know, it was surprising you know, to me as well. I didn't actually figure it out until like I was there. Yeah. But I sold gin and whiskey. For you how know, long? The whole time or just like? A couple of years, three, two, three years. You know, how did I sell gin and whiskey? So again, it was one of these things. I knew I needed to earn money and I thought, okay, I'm going to Eastern Europe. What can I sell in Eastern Europe that actually has value, but no one here values so much? And so it should be something that doesn't spoil. It should be something that there's excess of. And if you think about it, well, alcohol is one of those things. Yeah. And it turns out that if you look a little bit, it's not so hard to find out that the liquor industry was sort of consolidating into these big conglomerates. So if you made gin A and you bought a company that sold gin B and gin B was the one you chose to market, well, you had a whole lot of gin A that was costing you money in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. So I called up companies and I said hey I know you have a bunch of alcohol in a warehouse and it's costing you money and you can't sell it because it'll interfere with your marketing program I'm going to this place where you don't have a marketing plan yeah I'll sell it for you and you give me you know a five percent commission or whatever and so that's how I did it and so I went okay, and I cool. said you know to people do you want to buy gin yeah. it's western <laughs> you know do you want to buy whiskey it's western did you have um, connections i guess yeah in, in the u.s then yeah. um well i just called places yeah, okay. you know from my bedroom and and acted like i had a real office and i knew what i was doing okay. and so and it works, seemed right? to work out <laughs> well i wonder if that like entrepreneurship is what then also led you to start this company too or? probably you know again it it worked and it it seemed again you could understand these things they weren't like magical and they weren't hard yeah um you just had to like try them and so you know when the i i wish i could find i probably could find this guy's name who was a pretty 
semi-important, you know, liquor company exec who came to visit me from his offices in London, and which I, of course, had no offices in in Toronto. Yeah. And I, you know, convinced him to meet me at a, you know, at a restaurant or at a hotel lobby restaurant. You know, he insisted on paying the ten dollars for the coffee or whatever, and he, you know, and he looked at me and said, you know. I know. Yeah, this company has much deeper pockets than you. <laughs> Thought he doesn't know. You know it's okay. like, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So you know, I think I think part of it is when I give. Sometimes I have to give uh, panels and so on for the Entrepreneur uh, Institute at, at New York and so on. And I have the sense that many people can be entrepreneurs, but the thing that holds them back is that they are one afraid of the uncertainty associated with that mm -hmm. and if you're not so afraid that's really the biggest barrier in my experience you know so you fail it's not like the biggest deal yeah um and who says you're gonna fail anyway right maybe, um, maybe you do great you know <laughs> it you can figure it out it can be figured out okay so. yeah was this like this would be almost like post back kind of like research? Did you go to graduate school then in Prague? Or so did you, after yeah. Prague, I spent I was supposed to be there six months. I spent eighteen months. My girlfriend left me. Um, I ended up applying to graduate school. You're like don't need to be here okay. anymore. You know? <laughs> right. We uh, I came to New York um, to go to graduate school, and how I chose New York was I really wanted to study play cells, these okay, magical yeah. cells, and. There were really three different places to do it at the time. John O'Keefe in London, and in London it seemed like you really did need money to go to graduate school. Okay. And the Barnes and McNaughton lab, but they were leaving Colorado, so never quite responded to me. And then the third was the group at, in Brooklyn, uh, Bob Muller and uh, John Kuby, Jim Ronk, that group. And uh, my mentor, Jan Buresh, said, you know, that group is really the most empirical group. You mm -hmm. you know, they're, they just are interested in how these cells operate and me measuring and describing that, which at the time was very appealing to me. And I, I was sort of trained by Jan not to be too theoretical and to be more empirical. Interesting. Is that, um, was that the opposite of your undergraduate Yes, it was, you know, the exact opposite. Yeah, so I applied and I I went to graduate school in New York, had a great time. Jan became a member of the National Academy about a year before I graduated. And on his way to Washington, and he said, I have a deal for you. If you come back to Prague, I can't give you any money, okay? But you'll figure that out. That's <laughs> like just a thing you'll figure out. But what I can do is I can give you the department and you can have you can run the lab there. And if you run the lab, then you can decide what everyone will do. And so you can find, you know, whatever problem you want to work on, you can you do that. lab space okay? or something? He said or? you can have the, all the lines and all the department, all the, you know, the department. Interesting. You know, you'll figure out the I've money part. like that, yeah. Right? And <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like a good deal. It's not that good a deal, actually. It comes with a, a huge number of problems okay. that I had no idea. It's like buying a house that you don't understand has like yeah, and that you, rickety basements that's or right. something. And, and in fact, you know, it's even, I think even worse, it's, you know, you, you get to have a house and you have no idea actually what a house is. You know, you've only lived in a tent. Um, so it's something like that. It has a roof and the roof can leak, you know, or, yeah. you know, there are taxes to pay, really? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, because he took the offer. So though, I took yeah. the offer. 
no, we've made it work. And so I spent, and I learned, and it was a very hard thing, and it was not, I not necessarily the kind of thing I would recommend to, for you, I wouldn't say you should do that. <laughs> but I worked extremely hard, one. And two, yeah, I just took it sort of seriously. And I wasn't planning like how I'll leave here. I just was doing it every day. And there were some really great opportunities. So for example, I am a reasonably competent biomedical engineer, but I have no biomedical engineering training that I could show you, but I have excellent biomedical engineer training you know at someone's knee so every evening at 7 p.m until about 11:38, exactly <laughs> approximately 11:38, i would work with an engineer who didn't speak english very well but was extremely clever kaminskin so he taught me how to you know design things and we made computer cards and trackers and you know devices that i that I don't use today, but the uh, early versions of those devices. And he and I had a falling out eventually, like he sabotaged the lab and so on. <laughs> okay. Like physically um, or? Physically. Oh, um, but it was okay. It was actually a great thing because I had learned how to make all of those things Didn't myself. Yeah. And I, in fact, learned to do them better because I was okay. a modern guy. Yeah, yeah. And so instead of building a PCI card, which I had learned how to do in principle, I could just go buy a general purpose video tracker and I could program it. So we rebuilt everything in the lab in, you know, just a couple, took like 10 days. It was astonishing. You know, I spent maybe 10 days begging him to give everything back. And then I was just like, I can do this. (laughs) So that was the kind of great thing about Prague. Um, I, I learned to do a lot of things that I use today. So I'm not afraid to you know, build an amplifier or design a new thing if I need it or yeah. buy something and then open it and change it because I was taught how to do that. Okay, so when you're in that lab, this is like now it's your own like shop. What were you interested at that point in time? And then is that still kind of continuing what you're doing Yeah, today? so I was always interested in place cells. I was interested in how place cells are used, not for representing space per se, but how they're used to teach the animal something about the world so it can make decisions in the world and so on. You know, it's like we know that they fire in a space. The question is, does that mean that the animal thinks it's in that space or what part of the circuit is? That's right. And at what point does that become useful? So fire, knowing I'm here, 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 here is not all that useful, I would imagine. It's useful when you say, I'm here and it means these are the things I have access to or, you know, and so on. And as... It's not even so simple to say that you're here, actually. I'm here in Austin. I'm here in front of a microphone. I'm here on a chair. All of these things Mm -hmm. are true and not necessarily um, useful, all of them, in this instance. But in different instances, we could have different interpretations. So that has always interested me because it's about how my mind understands the world and it's idiosyncratic to my mind. It may not be the same as your mind, and I suspect from a gross point of view it is, but we would only have to talk in detail and recognize that we have distinctive understandings and interpretations of things. Yeah. And to me, that that's always been what's interested me. Mm-hmm. So I've you know, either explicitly or implicitly, but tried to steer my work towards that. 
And now I realize it's not all, I'm never probably going to answer how, you know, how it all appears. But maybe more importantly, I think I have the appreciation that the way I think about the world actually has an impact on how I'll experience the world. And so if that's true, one of the things that we should try to understand is how to adjust and structure how people think about their own being yeah. um, so that they can you know, change how they conduct their lives for good or ill. But yeah. Is there anything, I guess, like pieces of wisdom you've picked up from with that knowledge <laughs> like that you could, because I'm assuming you're trying to understand it at this, like, you know, at the fundamental level, you know, what are the synaptic changes? What are the, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. what you exactly. Yeah. At all those levels. Molecular level. I folk try and do all the levels yeah. I'm able to. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, is there anything then in, the, in your personal life then using that information that's changed? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm well aware that I can think my way into and out of how I feel, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I have perfect control of, of everything, but I realize um, very clearly if I feel poorly about something or uncertain, if I have to do something that's important, how I think about it and how I feel about it are very intermingled. So mm -hmm. I will give a much better presentation if I feel that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So for me, it's very simple. I try very hard never to talk about things I'm uncertain about, that I feel uncertain about, because then I will act as if I'm uncertain, and yes. that will be bad. Nobody wants that. And so in my personal life, at times might even be considered sort of a pain uh, for it, or in, in some sense patronizing, because I also understand that people say things to me and they don't necessarily mean what they say in the long term but right now that's how they're actually feeling and yeah. it may be irrational mm -hmm. but it's okay because that's what people do yeah so i gotta deal with that in an appropriate way mm -hmm. um which i'm not again i'm no master of it and if you talk to my wife she'd say i'm terrible at it <laughs> okay but i try okay you know i actively try and i do think you know as somebody who's a neuroscientist and lots of neuroscientists have you know a very special fortune for understanding or for having ways to think about how they can understand themselves yeah. that most people don't have and you've spent you know order decade trying to understand that so you should use that for your own you know benefit because yeah. it's very special information right yeah and it doesn't need to be right in its details it just gives you insight into the fact that the world out there as you experience it is somehow tied to your past, it's somehow tied to your expectations, it's somehow tied to your physicalness. So, you know, when you see someone who's who has a mental illness or you see someone who has uh, a challenge, I think it's very hard to as a as a somebody who understands brains to blame that person in their entirety for their condition, the stuff that they have. And, you know, they're trying to do the best with the tools that they have, presumably. And it's very hard to to be cold about that. Yeah. What are some like insights in the actual research that you've done that <clears throat> leads you to understand how cognitive control can shape the brain, you know, physically? One of the things that I was you know, very impressed by as a graduate student has sort of stuck with me, and that is 
that very often we look for the regularities in things, what we would call the tuning curve or something like that in, in a neural response, and very often we can figure out how to describe that, but it mostly means that we have to somehow reject, filter out, or manage, if you will, to hide the noise. And that that noise might not actually be noise and might be the signals that are actually of interest. And so in hippocampal place cells, I re recall when my, when I first was able to record them, watching them and saying to my mentor, you, you mean the time average pictures you show in the papers look nothing like this. Look, the rat's going to walk across the firing field and fire 10 spikes. And then look, he's going to do it again. No spikes. Like, how can that be? This is supposedly a Gaussian is describing a probability of firing and so on. And this is kind of impossible to, to, to be this way. And he'd say, well, you know, it's just, it's biology, Andre. It's noise. <laughs> that's right? our best. That's science's worst <laughs> and most common. Oh, it's, it's more complicated than we'd like it to be. But it's true. Right. And so I, I think over time, one of the things I learned to do is sort of to embrace that. If the noise has structure to it, it's a signal and you have to use your intuitions about which signals to pursue and which ones to, to hide from. Yeah. Don't hide the noise. Don't over-average to find your signal okay. because you might be throwing away the important thing. Was there any that you found doing something like having that yeah, philosophy? Well, so my that? whole, my, I discovered something or I described something that we call over-dispersion. It's the temporal unreliability in place cells and you can do experiments to demonstrate how to control that unreliability. And it turns out it's a signal like attention, maybe. It's mm. the cognitive control signal. It reveals what I call dynamic grouping in these cells. They are not stationary in their activity profiles. And we you know, study that. In fact, we're even trying to design approaches, you could call them therapeutic approaches, to control that, not necessarily remove it, but, ne but control it in the effort to make more effective antipsychotic, perhaps, uh, medications or treatment plans. That, so yeah. maybe there's too much noisiness and you would like to help the neural system have the right amount of it. Or maybe there's not enough and therefore you have a fixity in your behavior or your perceptions of the mm. world. And you'd like to figure out a way to relax a little bit the neural structure so that you can have that fl those fluctuations. So these are the kinds of things I think about, you know, from early on looking as a graduate student at the cells that didn't fire in the way the pictures said they were supposed yeah. to fire, right? So, you know, that also led to trying to develop measures that don't rely on, on stationarity in a signal or things being in a steady state so that you can actually detect that it's changing. And if, if you think, look at what I do, most of the work that I do uses those kinds of measures. Mm -hmm. And it comes from a belief, you know, it's my own projection <laughs> onto the data too, 
that signals aren't necessarily stationary and the system isn't necessarily in a steady state if you would like to see its cognitive features. Yeah, so you have this this paradigm. It's a box and then a zone. There's a there's a negative a place where the animal would mm-hmm. receive a shock. And so they can use right like cues inside the arena, but then also the arena is moving around. So right. yeah, I, maybe could you talk about why you developed that and what... So yeah. the, w- 1997, when I was thinking of going back to Prague, I spent the summer. So Bura said, hey, why don't you come for the summer and see how it, how it is? So I came with an experiment. And the experiment at that time... Many people thought hippocampus was crucial for path integration. And so the question was how to measure it. And so the idea was there was a water maze and we drained the water from the water maze and I put a little platform about the same height as the water, imagining that a rat on there would use distal cues just like in a water maze. Mm -hmm. And the idea was there was nothing that rotated that the animal would walk around there and we would shock him if he entered a particular part of that space and he'd learn to not go there. And after he learned not to go there, what we would do is turn off the shock and turn off the lights and watch his path integrator, see how long it lasted for. Well, it lasted for like 40, 45 minutes. And we thought, okay, because he can hear or see, we tried to, we used, made the room basically air and light tight had a very loud noise mask. Nothing we could control seemed to affect that. Mm-hmm. And so one day uh, with this poor guy, Benedetto Saccati, he was, who's a really good neuroscientist now, but he'd spent the summer with me and he was the guy locked in the room yeah. like with, with the animal. So one day he said, you know, what is, what, what cues could they be using, right? The, these are the distal cues. And so I let the animal walk onto my hands and Benedetto sort of moved the arena about 180 degrees and we let the animal walk off and watched what it did. And it avoided both the proper part of the room and about 180 degrees away. And so it was very clear that the animals were using local cues mm-hmm. on the arena just as much as distal cues. Yeah and that there was no way to control them because we'd been wiping the arena and so on. And the only way to control them would be to move move the arena yeah. or to put water on the arena. Yeah. And so that was how we developed the active place avoidance by putting a motor <laughs> under the arena so and rotating no it. Choice, yeah. yeah, so now he can show us that he is explicitly ignoring where he is on the floor or he can show us that he's using where he is on the floor whichever way um, yeah. it worked Great. so that's how that's how the active place of awesome. task got developed i really appreciate thanks for talking oh, about sure. it Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. If you want to learn more about the science or scientist we talked to today, head to our website, brainpodcast.com. For more updates, you can follow us on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter. And if you like the show and, you know, you just want to let us know, go to iTunes, click on that five-star review. If you hate the show, you can also let us know how you feel about it there. But we just want to hear from you. Those reviews help us stay visible and let us keep putting out more episodes. So thank you to everyone for doing that. The music on today's episode was by the band Sure. The first song was Pale Moon Rising, and you're listening to Good Shivers right now. Sure is a rock band from Austin, Texas. 
and I love their music. Go check it out at suresucks.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.